case is Thank submitted. You, Mr. Chief Justice. We'll hear argument next in number 891027, Norfolk and Western Railway Company versus American Train Dispatchers Association in a companion case. Mr. Berlin, please proceed. It is Berlin and not Berlin, I take it. Uh, either way is fine, Mr. Chief. Well, good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case presents an important question of federal law. The provision in issue is a section of the Interstate Commerce Act, 49 U.S.C. Section 11341A. That section applies to a railroad participating in a consolidation that has been approved by the Interstate Commerce Commission. It provides that such a railroad is exempt from all other law to the extent necessary to let the railroad carry out its consolidation. The question before this Court is whether this exemption protects the railroad from claims that are based on the railroad's contracts and are asserted exclusively under federal law. The particular contracts involved here are labor agreements, and the particular federal law is the Railway Labor Act. Now, since 1920, in a series of statutes, Congress has encouraged the nation's railroads to merge and consolidate under the supervision of the Interstate Commerce Commission. To this end, Congress has given the ICC exclusive jurisdiction over matters within its authority and given to railroads participating in approved consolidations a broad exemption from other legal restraints. This exemption originated in the Transportation Act of 1920, was reenacted in 1933, reenacted in 1940, and took its present form in 1978 when it was recodified without substantive change. CSX Transportation and Norfolk Southern are two of today's large railroad systems. Each system was formed when two previously separate railroad systems were placed under common control with ICC approval. On receipt of that approval, these railroads set out to achieve the traditional purposes of mergers and consolidations, which include the realization of greater economies and efficiencies through the combination of facilities, the elimination of redundant facilities, the bringing control of various operations into single locations, and otherwise taking advantage of economies of scale that the consolidations make possible. Now, as part of carrying out their consolidations, CSX Transportation and Norfolk Southern each sought to transfer work from one of their previously separate properties to the other. CSX Transportation had a freight car heavy repair shop at Waycross, Georgia, and another same kind of shop at Raceland, Kentucky. CSXT didn't need to retain both shops, and the facility at Raceland was larger and more modern, and it had substantial excess capacity. Therefore, CSXT proposed to bring to Raceland the freight car heavy repair work that was previously done at Waycross. Norfolk Southern proposed to make a slightly different kind of operational change. Norfolk Southern operates more than 2,000 locomotives. Previously, the distribution of locomotives, their assignment to specific trains and facilities, was handled separately on each of Norfolk Southern's two constituent railroads. Now, Norfolk Southern proposed to bring all of this work to one location where one of the railroads would administer the work for the whole Norfolk Southern system. The unions in each case resisted the railroad's proposed changes, contending that these changes were inconsistent with provisions of their existing labor agreements 
and also that the Railway Labor Act gave the unions the right to insist that the changes not be made until either the unions had agreed to them or the railroads had exhausted the Railway Labor Act's virtually endless process for the negotiation of changes to existing agreements. The ICC held that the railroads' proposed changes were exempt by virtue of Section 11341A from claims asserted under the Railway Labor Act, including claims based on labor agreements. The Commission found that the railroad's actions were subject to the processes of the ICC's employee protective conditions, which had been imposed on both consolidations as required by a different section of the Interstate Commerce Act, Section 11347. The protective conditions confer on employees a generous array of compensatory benefits, including a guarantee of wage protection for as long as six years if they are affected by the consolidation. And the protective conditions also establish a procedure for the negotiation and, if necessary, arbitration of an agreement to govern the manner in which a railroad may implement its approved consolidation if that implementation will cause employees to be dismissed or displaced or will require a rearrangement of the workforce. And it was that procedure that was followed in these cases and which led to the ICC's decisions. The Court of Appeals reversed. It held that the exemption from all other law reaches only positive legislative enactments and is ineffective against claims asserted under contracts. The Court reasoned that because labor agreements are a form of contract, the statutory exemption does not apply to them and to the claims asserted by the unions in these cases. Now, that decision of the Court of Appeals was surely incorrect. Contractual obligations are binding only because of the law, and an exemption from law bars enforcement of those obligations. This Court held in 1948 in Schwabacher that the statutory exemption covers claims based on contracts. Mr. Berlin, can I interrupt to ask you a question about the statutory language? The exemption is necessary to let that person carry out the transaction, hold, maintain, and operate property, and exercise control, and so forth. Which of the predicates are you relying on? Is it necessary to carry out the transaction, the necessary to operate the property, or the necessary to exercise control? Both transfers of work, Justice Stevens, were part of, first part of carrying out the approved transaction. So the person carrying out the transaction in each case was the railroads. An exemption from claims... You say that the, the merger of the repair facilities four or five years later was essential to the merger of the two, two railroads? That's not how we put it, Justice Stevens. The statute requires that the railroad be carrying out its approved transaction, that is, the consolidation of the railroads, and that the exemption then be necessary to let that carrying out proceed. So that it is the... So that any amalgamation of, of facilities any time in the future would be exempt from all law? No, Justice Stevens. The exemption does not reach uh, to any conceivable amalgamation in the future. The, the then why does it reach to this one? In this case, the railroads were carrying out the traditional purposes, that is, the combining of extra facilities or the centralization of control. Uh, the court recognized uh, many years ago in, in, in Texas versus United States in 1934 that the broad congressional purpose uh, in, in uh, uh, giving exclusive authority in, uh, to the ICC over consolidations uh, requires that the uh, scope of the exemption be interpreted broadly as that purpose. Now here, the railroads were doing what are paradigmatic changes in their workforce. 
The combination of two facilities... They have to be paradigmatic changes? Why, why, why doesn't it cover any change that will increase the efficiency of the combined operation as opposed to two separate operations? It covers a great many such changes. But how do we know which ones it covers? That's the, that's the heart of my question. These are the easy cases, Justice Stevens. I don't mean to duck the question, but I want to start with... Well, the easiest case is legal objections to the transaction itself. That's the easiest one, which even the Court of Appeals would recognize. Certainly. But this is... Theoretically, you could have merged the two legal entities and continued to operate the two separate car facilities, repair facilities. Oh, certainly, and that situation occurred for some years, but it was, it, it is always anticipated when complex entities such as these railroad systems engage in mergers and, cons and other consolidations that there will, over time, be operational changes to realize the efficiencies and economies that, the, that Congress wants the railroads to achieve under the... What if an executive of one of the corporations had a contract with tenure to it that was no, he was no longer needed because you've already got one chief executive officer? Could you fire him without any worrying about the contract? Not a collective bargaining agreement, an ordinary private contract. Uh, such don't need this guy anymore. Such a situation could certainly be within the reach of the exemption. I know it could be, but do you think it is? Yes. But let, but let me say that the, 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 the working out of this exemption, before, before we can get to a situation where we say everything may be, uh, in, the, the, the exemption may sweep so broadly that virtually all contracts could be covered by it, uh, surely that is too broad a statement of what this exemption does. Uh, before an action of a railroad, combined railroad, is going to enjoy the protection of the exemption. That action first must be a, a, a part of, the, it must be encompassed within the approved consolidation in the first instance. Second, the railroad must be carrying out what was approved. And third, the exemption must be necessary to the carrying out. Now, one qualification whenever we talk about hypotheticals involving employees uh, is that the labor protective conditions provide compensation for employees who are affected. Chief Executive Officer Your would not enjoy would be that. equally strong without the labor protective uh, provisions, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. But Congress has shown by providing a compensatory mechanism in the labor protective conditions, which it requires uh, the ICC to impose on these transactions, that the, ex that the statutory exemption is going to affect employees. The Court recognized in Loudoun in 1939 that consolidations inevitably will cause employees to lose their jobs, suffer reductions in their wages, and lose their seniority rights, which are defined by contracts. And when that happens, the employees are going to be compensated. Now, the, it's the, the enactment of the protective conditions legislation uh, for the first time in 1940 was part of uh, a major legislative review of the uh, the ICC's authority and the scope of the exemption in the, in the Transportation Act of 1940. When Congress first put that statutory foundation under labor protection, which the ICC had just begun, recently begun at that time uh, uh, putting into effect on its own, uh, Congress looked at the entire range of, of, uh, of questions that, that bear on this issue. For example, Congress had to decide whether to uh, reenact the general exemption from all other legal restraints, as it was then uh, phrased in the law, and Congress did so. Congress passed up at the time the opportunity that was suggested to it to reenact a temporary uh, measure that had been in effect in Title I of the Emergency Railroad Transportation Act of, of 1933 Mr. that Mr. prevented Bre these Mr. things. Mr. Berlin, uh, looking at that same statutory language that Justice Stevens was asking about, uh, at what stage and by whom is a finding of necessity made? 
the uh, Justice Stevens, in his concurrence in uh, the BLE case in 1986, suggested that any tribunal that is called upon to assess whether a competing claim may be asserted may be the one called upon, may have to determine whether the uh, uh, exemption is necessary to the carrying out of the transaction. And in this case, however, uh, it comes up, Mr. Chief Justice, through the, the, uh, the actual procedures of the protective conditions which Congress has directed be put into place. Well, did the Court of Appeals in this case rest any of its decision on the conclusion that this was not necessary? No, it did not, Mr. Chief Justice. The uh, Court of Appeals didn't reach the issue of carrying out, and it didn't reach the issue of necessity. All the Court of Appeals held is that claims based on labor agreements may never come within the scope of the statutory exemption. Even though everyone would concede that the action overriding those claims was necessary? Even assuming that were the case, that's right. Uh, what, what the Court of Appeals did was rely on, the, on its uh, 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 conclusion that the exemption from all other law uh, pertained only to uh, uh, positive statutory enactments. The Court dis- uh, cut a wedge through the middle of the Railway Labor Act and distinguished between uh, contract claims, which is what, it, it, what the Court perceived to be asserted in this case, and other types of claims that might be brought under the Railway Labor Act or rest on the Railway Labor Act. We submit and have, have uh, uh, discussed in our briefs that that, that dis- uh, distinction is illusory, that uh, claims arising under labor agreements are only assertable because of the Railway Labor Act, as labor agreements in the railroad industry are creatures of the Railway Labor Act. The contracts carry out the RLA commands, and it's only the RLA that makes them enforceable. And so we, we think that, that one thing this Court should do as it visits the issue is hold that the exemption reaches claims assert that it may reach claims asserted under labor agreements and as part of that that it reaches claims asserted under the Railway Labor Act. That is, there's no way to just sever this out and say that's as far as the case should go. What claims under the collecting bargaining agreements uh, 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 had to be overridden here? Well, Justice White, one of the one of the difficulties is in pinning down precisely what the specific claims were in both cases. In the CSX case, uh, the employees on the, the, uh, the seaboard property, the, the property in which that Waycross shop was located, had what is called the Orange Book Collective Bargaining Agreement, which had been negotiated in connection with an earlier merger that resulted in that seaboard railroad. They contended that the Orange Book contractually barred the merged railroad from moving work, their work, from Raceland, uh, from Waycross, Georgia, where it was covered by the Orange Book, to the property at, at uh, Raceland, Kentucky, which was not in that original Orange Book merger. So they said that the Orange Book was a bar itself, a contractual bar. Uh, uh, by way of example, in the, uh, in the Norfolk Southern case involving the transfer of employees who perform work known as distribution of locomotive power, uh, the employees were to be moved, the work was to be moved, and employees given an opportunity to follow it, from a property where one union had a contract that, pro- that covered that work, to the other property where the work was done by management officers of the other company. And the employees in that case contended that their agreement barred the transfer, although the specifics were always unclear to us, and also that before the transfer could be accomplished, the railroad had to negotiate with the union over the terms of the transfer. That is, that the Railway Labor Act conferred on the employees through their union the right to insist on negotiation before such a change could be made. Below, the railroads thought they were at issue over the question of claims based on the Railway Labor Act, encompassing but broader than claims simply asserted on specific labor agreements. Was this, was this a, uh, 
If the unions had uh, had their way, uh, would it, this been a major dispute or a minor dispute? Or? The unions contended that this, uh, that the minor, the major dispute rules applied. That is, that a change, a unilateral change in working conditions was underway, uh, and that uh, they had the right to insist on the bargaining process being okay. followed. Uh, again, Lynn, as, as I as I recall your brief, you're 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 not arguing, although I guess you'll settle for purposes of this case that it's only RLA. Uh, Contracts that are uh, superseded by this legislation. You, you, you believe that any contractual commitment is? Justice Scalia, the question that the Court uh, uh, took on certiorari is whether the exemption applies to claims based on agreements that are asserted under federal law. Now, we would be quite content, I assure you. Well, some, some of your argumentation is, I, well, I forget which brief and which of your, your co-petitioner, uh, uh, which brief is which, but, but one of them makes the argument that, uh, that of course, uh, if there is a commitment to bondholders uh, that would stand in the way of, of a merger, that would be overridden by the ICC's action. Is that, is that your yes, position? Yes, such a claim, Justice Scalia, is surely within the scope of the exemption. The Court as much as said so in Schwabacher. And that's, and that's not an RLA agreement. No, that's right. With the Court's permission, I'd like to save the rest of my time for rebuttal. Very well, Mr. Counsel, I, I would like to ask you one question. Uh, I take it the... Uh, and necessity clause of 13 of 341 has to comply with the minimum requirements of 347 of 11347 Justice Kennedy any action that the uh, the answer is yes the, the if employees are to be affected that is displaced or dismissed or somehow have their work arrangements changed uh, uh, even if the statutory exemption does apply as we say it does those employees receive the compensatory and procedural protections of the protective conditions that are imposed by the ICC under Section 11347. Is, is, is that of relevance in, in our interpreting uh, the scope and effect of, three, of 11341? We do not depend on the protective conditions to uh, sustain our Well, do you, do you think it's a, don't we have to in, interpret the Act according to its whole design, all of its sections? And what I'm getting at is whether or not... The, we shouldn't really have the Commission's interpretation of 11.347 in front of us in order to make this determination. Well, Justice Kennedy, the Commission — well, first, the statutory exemption predates the protective conditions by almost 40 years, or 40 years statutorily, and almost that much before the ICC began imposing them on its own authority. The, uh, uh, but the ICC said when it heard these cases on remand from the Court of Appeals and rendered a decision under the protective conditions that, it, that its decision was — in, in deciding it, it was bound to apply the reading that the Court of Appeals gave to 11.341a's exemption provision. And in a later decision last summer, uh, the, the ICC has made clear that if this Court reverses the Court of Appeals on the exemption, the ICC will have to revisit its decision on the protective conditions. So the ICC sees 11.347's scope as dependent, at least in part, on what, whether there is an exemption out there. And we say that the that that's clearly right that the Congressional action most recently in 1976 relating to employee protection was done against the background of 56 years of this pre-existing exemption, and it bears that way rather than the other. The availability of the protective conditions and their compensation and procedural protection is important in that it recognizes the Congressional attention to the interests of employees, but by no means necessary to the existence of the Mr. exemption. Berlin, I have to interrupt, too. You're saying, if I understand you, if you say you must comply with 11.347, that that statute is not an other law within the meaning of 11.341. Well, otherwise, you'd be exempt from it. That, that's right. I think it's part of the same statute, and Congress expects the ICC and the railroads to comply with it, even in an exempt situation. 
347 is not another law. I think it's not, but even if it were, an exemption from it would never be necessary because Congress has said that. Thank you, Mr. Berlin. Uh, Mr. Muneer, we'll hear now from you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The issue in this case is whether Section 11341A of the Interstate Commerce Act exempts a participant in a Commission-approved transaction from its contractual obligations. We submit that Section 11341A does exactly that. We base our conclusion squarely on the language of the statute. Section 11341A states that a carrier participating in an approved transaction is exempt from the antitrust laws and from all other law as necessary to carry out the transaction. That exemption is easily sufficient to embrace those laws governing contractual obligations. Well, one wouldn't have to read it that way as an original proposition had it not been for Schwabacher. Uh, at least that, that's my view, that you could say law means governing law, not contracts which come into, into existence as a result of that law. Well, with all respect, Your Honor, I think that that would be a difficult proposition. Uh, the reason is this. Uh, contracts derive their force only from the fact that they are enforceable through law. Uh, what is actually being exempted here is the enforcement of those laws. Uh, a naked promise without the, the background of law behind it uh, would not be subject uh, to this provision, but there would be no need for the exemption as well. Now, this Court recognized, as you note, the principle in Schwabacher uh, that, in fact, contractual obligations are subject to the 11341A exemption. In that case, the Court held that the Commission's approval of a railroad merger could deprive dissenting shareholders of their contract rights under state law. The same is true in this case. Section 11341A preempts the union's rights. One of the issues in that case was what did the state law require? Not exactly, Your Honor. I think the, the question there, uh, to, to give you the background on this case, the dissenting shareholders argued uh, that they were entitled to uh, accrued dividends under the corporate charter and that that was enforceable through Michigan law. The commission... Even if the amount were greater than the reasonable value of the shares in the exchange. That is correct. And there had been no determination of whether they would be entitled to it or not. That is correct. And the court held that it, the commission should rule on that issue, and its ruling would be dispositive. And it uh, noted, for example, that first the commission must consider the public interest uh, in approving... It would be the dispositive of the state law question of whether they were entitled to 100 cents on the dollar on the accrued dividends. Uh, what, it would, what it would effectively do is prevent them from enforcing their contractual rights under state law. That is the effect of the exemption. It prevents enforcement of law. But the same is true in this case. As I said, Section 11341A preempts the union's rights under their collective bargaining agreements to the extent that enforcement of those rights would prevent the railroad from carrying out the approved transaction. Indeed, if it were otherwise, many of these transactions could simply not take place. Now, the unions do not quarrel with our basic position that Section 11341A can preempt the enforcement of contractual rights, nor do they quarrel with the result in Schwabacher. Instead, the unions argue that the contract in this case should be treated differently because the Commission, in their view, has no authority or control over labor matters. Now, there are two fundamental problems with this position. First, the union's argument as to whether the Commission has authority, control, or jurisdiction over labor matters are simply beside the point. Section 11341A, by its terms, exempts a participant in a Commission-approved transaction from all law to the extent necessary to carry out the transaction. The exemption does not depend on whether the Commission has jurisdiction over the subject matter of that law. 
Second, the union's assertion is simply not correct. The, uh, the Interstate Commerce Act requires the Commission to consider and address labor matters when approving a uh, proposed merger. Indeed, as this Court recognized in Loudoun versus United States, mergers almost invariably affect collective bargaining agreements, and the Commission must consider those effects when evaluating the proposed transaction. Moreover, there is no need to read into Section 11341A an implied exception for labor contracts because the Interstate Commerce Act contains other provisions that are designed specifically to protect rail labor from hardships that might result from the merger. First, as I have mentioned, the Commission must consider the interests of rail labor when deciding whether the proposed transaction is in the public interest. Second, the Commission must address the terms of the merger transaction. May I ask you a question similar to the one I asked uh, Mr. Berlin? Yes, Your Honor. Supposing one of the two railroads had uh, long-term leases on its executive offices and they want to consolidate their executive offices, do they cancel the lease? Uh, It depends. The Commission looks at this in two parts. What does the statute provide? Well, the Commission, the, the statute provides that they would be exempt from their enforcement of those contracts to the extent necessary to carry out the transaction. Well, let's see. That's too much necessary in just the same number of dollar savings that you get out of consolidating two uh, car repair facilities. Well, the Commission will look at this in two steps. First, we'll ask whether this proposed activity of the railroads is a part of the approved transaction. This is essentially a, a matter of interpreting the transaction itself. Not, not interpreting the contract. Well, how do you interpret a transaction without interpreting the contract? Well, the contract, uh, you're talking about... The contract the- doesn't provide for the cancellation of my executive office leases, and this contract doesn't provide for the consolidation of the car repair facilities, does it? Uh, the, it was a finding by the arbitrator that, in fact, the uh, transaction did contemplate... Well, I understand the contemplated, but, but was there a contractual requirement that these... Uh, As part of the transaction, no, but I do not believe that's necessary, and the Commission does not believe that that's necessary. Rather, they look to whether this was a contemplated activity under the transaction. Uh, once it makes that... Supposing they could prove that they contemplated merging the office space in the two uh, headquarters offices. Well, that's... But there's nothing said about it in the contract. Uh, there's nothing... This, again, is a matter that the arbitrator decided in this case. It's not a, the question that's presented squarely well, What's your here. view about my hypothetical? Uh, my view of your hypothetical is that this would be submitted to the appropriate tribunal. They would determine first whether it was a part of the approved transaction. If so, the next question what, would be whether... What appropriate whether tribunal the, decides whether a lease on some property in, on Wall Street is, uh, is part of the transaction? Well... The, uh, the, the tribunal is going to make that determination by looking at the terms of the transaction. What, what tribunal? I'm, ask, I'm asking what tribunal makes that determination. Uh, it will be the tribunal that has been asked to enforce the contract lease, most likely. Uh, the parties like the New York making, State Court would do it. Uh, New York State Court, for example. They would examine the transaction and make a determination whether this was contemplated under the transaction, whether it was implied in fact in the transaction, and they'd make the second determination of whether this interferes with carrying out whether the enforcement of the lease interferes with the carrying out of that particular activity under the transaction. Well, the, didn't, the, didn't, didn't the arbitration committee uh, decide that uh, this shock consolidation was actually authorized by the Commission's 1980 order? Yes, they did. Uh, implied, they found it implied in the terms of the transaction. It was oh, not and like the, the And the Commission affirmed that. And the Commission did affirm that as well. So that this, is, this was actually contemplated or uh, authorized by our 1980 order. Yes, and the Court of Appeals did not reach that issue, so it's not a part of this case. The issue before this case is the interpretation. Well, so we, it, as it comes to us, it was authorized. Yes, that is correct. Now, as I was saying, the, uh, not only is, is the public interest considered in the course, the labor interest considered in the course of the public interest evaluation of the Commission, 
In addition, the Commission must add to the terms of the merger special provisions that are specifically designed to protect rail labor for dislocations that might result from carrying out the merger. And then finally, as we've been talking about, Section 11.341's exemption applies only to the extent that it is necessary to permit implementation of the transaction. In sum, the express terms of the Act provide ample protection for rail labor. There's simply no need for this Court to create additional protections that are not part of the legislative scheme. I'd like to reserve the remainder of my time for the petitioner's rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Muneer. Uh, Mr. Mahoney? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, the Union respondents agree that the sole issue before this Court is whether Section 11.341A, standing alone, overrides contracts, including collective bargaining agreements. But the petitioners and the federal respondents acknowledge that regardless of how this Court rules on that specific question, the disputes between the parties will not be resolved. In its reply brief at page 3, Norfolk Southern states that a decision here will be useful as a guide to the ICC for, quote, it will matter in the application of the ICC's authority to administer employee protective conditions under Section 11347 whether the railroads are already exempt from the Railway Labor Act and labor agreements to the extent necessary to permit them to carry out the approved consolidation. And Norfolk Southern continues, the Interstate Commerce Commission has made clear that it will have to reconsider its remand decision if this Court agrees with the petitioners and the federal respondents as to the extent of the Section 11341 exemption. In short, it is Norfolk Southern's position that should this Court agree with it, 11341A will preempt 11347. It is our position that Section 11341A, standing alone, should not be read as overriding collective bargaining agreements. But if such an interpretation is applied to it, Section 11347 must then be considered because the exemption of 11341 extends only to railroads that are prevented from carrying out a merger or a control transaction as approved and conditioned. And Section 11347 supplies the conditions. In Texas against the United States, this Court held that the scope of the immunity is measured by the purpose which Congress had in view. I didn't think the railroad said that the... Is it their position that the uh, protective provisions don't apply at all if they win? I thought, they, I thought they, the protective provisions will at least guarantee six months, six years of pay. They will. Yeah, but strip them of their contract rights. But well, but isn't the, isn't the real issue whether they not only can transfer the work, but transfer the employees uh, uh, to the new location? No, I don't think that's, that's the, uh, the uh, issue, Your Honor. The issue is... Well, it was, though. There was an issue. That was... No. The, the issue about the transfer, uh, which was tried before the arbitrators in both cases, and in both cases, the arbitrators found that these transfers were authorized by the Commission because the Commission said they were authorized by the Commission, and the arbitrators but considered I, themselves... The first as part of my question was, did you understand the railroads to contend that the protective provisions do not apply in the sense that, that they object to six months, six years no. worth of pay? No, you're no right. they do not. No. They don't object to that, but what they no, want to but do they is want to transfer the they, they want to transfer the employees to the new location so they can work. Well, they want they want to absolve themselves of the contractual obligations they have under such as the Orange Book, which the arbitrator found they did not have to move. The arbitrator found that the Orange Book, for example, restricted the tra- prohibited transfer of work and prohibited transfer of employees beyond the old SCL property, and he said, well, the commission says. 
this is necessary in order to carry out this transaction, and this is an approved transaction, so we'll move the work. But we don't have to move the employees, and the commission turns right around and says, oh, that's egregious error, because that places this in conflict with our order, our five-year-old merger order, which didn't say anything about the Raceland Waycross shops at all, and couldn't have. Nobody knew what was going to happen in those days. What they have done is they have extended the term transaction, approved transaction, to every single thing that the carrier wants to carry out as a result of the transaction. And that's what the protection is there for, to protect employees. If, if you have a labor contract that, uh, with, uh, with, with the rail unions that say there will be no, con no consolidation of facilities, yes, then, uh, then the ICC could uh, decree mergers until the cows come home and nothing would happen except that uh, technically uh, there'd be one company operating inefficiently instead of two. No, under the Railway Labor Act, Your Honor, there would, something would happen. And what, what would happen? What would is, happen? Well, it, would, it might take a while, but it would happen. And that would be that at the end of the procedures of the Railway Labor Act, they could put whatever they wanted into effect. At the end of the procedures of the Railway Labor Act? Yes, they could put whatever they wanted into effect. And, and right now, the emergency board is hearing cases which contains the railroad's position that they want this authority to make these moves. They don't have it. They want it. They've placed it before the emergency board as their bargaining proposition under Section 6. Right? It is your position that all a, all a railway labor union has to do is put in its contact with management that there shall be no consolidation of facilities without the consent of the union and in effect, whatever the ICC uh, decrees, uh, no matter how specific it gets for that matter, about, uh, about a merger or a consolidation, it will not be effective because it cannot override that contractual if, obligation. Well, Your Honor, in the first place, it, I think... I think it can take a yes or no. Is that your position or not? No, it is not. All right. It's Why not? not my position because if you had a contract, I would judge, that was directly opposed to an order of the Commission, you could override the contract as the Court... Uh, said the Congress could do an L and N against Motley when the outlawed passes, but you can't. You wouldn't outlaw the obligation. There isn't a contractual obligation that obviously the other party paid for. The railroad is not going to give that sort of a benefit away. And I, was, I don't understand. I don't understand what you're saying. Well, there's an obligation, a, a contract obligation, as this court said in L and N against Motley, that they they might not they might take away specific performance. But they can't just wipe out all. Oh, I see. So, so, so what you're saying is, well, the the uh, the new company would be permitted to merge facilities, as the ICC has said, but they will have to pay compensation to the union for that. They would have to go back and make that determination. Which would probably uh, be compensation in the amount of the efficiency that they were trying to eliminate, right? I mean, the wages of all of the all of the people who would have otherwise been eliminated. Well, you'd have to look at, at 11347 requires two things. It seems to me it requires the, the things that Mr. Billen was saying, the compensation, the six years protection and money, but it also expressly says preservation of wages, rules, and working conditions, preservation of collective bargaining and collective bargaining agreement rights. Well, to the extent that that gover governs, I, I don't think the railroads are arguing that they aren't bound by that. They're, they're just arguing about whether, whether 41 permits them to, uh, uh, apart from the guarantees that are made in the legislation, override a contract. And your position is that if the labor union has an inefficiency built into a contract, it cannot be eliminated by the ICC. It can. It, it can. 
Yes. Not without compensation. I'm here. Oh, oh, not without compensation. Correct. Oh, yes, Your Honor. Okay. You want to say it can be eliminated with compensation. I, I regard that I as think, not being I eliminable. A, I think there's a constitutional I mean, you, you could buy back anything from the unions. I, I mean, management can go in and say, uh, let's eliminate this if we'll give you this much money. Sure. That's true. But I see for that. It is our position, Your Honor, that it is the, the overall view of Congress in regulating rail transportation was to ensure the adequate, safe, efficient, and uninterrupted flow of interstate commerce by rail. And to accomplish that, the Congress enacted three basic statutes and a number of ancillary statutes, the Interstate Commerce Act, the Railway Labor Act, and the Federal Railroad Safety Act. And the, as this Court said in Schwabacher, the Interstate Commerce Act governs issuance of securities, car supply, joint use of terminals, abandonments, and so forth, and also governs all financial transactions governing combinations of railroads. Its only relationship to employees is to consider their interest in reaching public interest findings and to impose minimum standards to protect employees against the effects of its orders. The second element, the Railway Labor Act, as this Court noted, was a complementary regime to the Interstate Commerce Act. Noted that in, in Pittsburgh and Lake Erie. And this act governs labor relations. It governs the making and maintaining of agreements affecting rates of pay, rules, and working conditions. And Section 7, first of the Railway Labor Act, provides that if there is a controversy regarding those matters and a party refuses to submit that to arbitration, he shall not be it shall not be construed as a violation of any legal obligation imposed upon such party by the terms of this act or otherwise. In other, and that is precisely what the Commission says the employees must do now. They must submit their contracts to arbitration, changes in their contracts to arbitration, elimination of their contracts and their uh, right to representation to arbitration. The third part of, these, of this tripartite statutory arrangement is the Safety Act, administered by the Federal Railroad Administration. Now, the petitioners and the federal respondents stress the exclusive and plenary nature of the Interstate Commerce Act, that it is the supreme law of the land, and so it is. But so is the Railway Labor Act, and so is the Safety Act in their specific spheres of governance. And there's no doubt that any state law that, that intrudes upon that, that exclusive sphere of the Interstate Commerce Act is preempted by the supremacy clauses implemented by 11341. And that was the situation in Schwabacher, where this court held a state law chartering a railroad was preempted to the extent it conflicted with the Interstate Commerce Act because Congress had occupied the field by giving complete control of the capital structure of railroads to the Interstate Commerce Commission. Just as the Railway Labor Act is supreme, plenary, and exclusive in the governance of the making and maintaining of agreements affecting rates of pay, rules, and working conditions. Now, the impact of these statutes do overlap. And when they do, they must be accommodated, giving as full effect as possible to the meaning and purpose of each. For example, the safety laws... <coughs> certainly impact are expensive. They impact upon the, the uh, efficiency of railroads, the flexibility of railroads. The Railway Labor Act does the same thing. But Congress says each of those things, are, each of those statutes are necessary in the public interest. There has never been, before 1983, a court or the commission or an arbitrator ever to hold that any provision of the Railway Labor Act or a collective bargaining agreement to be in conflict with any provision of the Interstate Commerce Act or an ICC order. It's never happened. But in 1983, the Commission in the DRGW case held that conflict existed. And in 1985, it held that by virtue of 11341, its orders, and not the Railway Labor Act or labor contracts, 
governed employee management relations in connection with an approved transaction. And by an approved transaction, the Commission meant any action made operationally or economically feasible or desirable by the merger. In other words, any result of the merger. The Commission made no attempt at accommodation of the two statutes at all or the separate complementary purposes, nor did it even acknowledge that prior to 1983, no conflict had ever been held to exist. The Commission just invaded the Railway Labor Act's sphere of governance, declared the existence of a conflict, and proclaimed itself the winner. Mr. Mahoney, can I ask you something about, about um, um, Section uh, 11347? Yes, I, I, had, I had assumed that the reason, the, the, the reason it provides that the arrangement and the order approving the transaction must require that the employees of the affected rail carrier will not be in a worse position related to their employment as a result of the transaction during the four years following the effective date. I assumed when I read it that the reason for that was without it, their employment rights could be altered. What, are, are they not talking about contractual rights of employment there? No, we're not. And they never were and they never had been. What, 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 Prior to, what they meant was you could abolish jobs. You could always abolish jobs. Cut back your workforces. Well, e- even if you had a contractual, I mean, even if, if the, well, even if there were a commitment to have so many jobs on a particular run? Oh, no, Your Honor. No? No. Now, those were never changed by by the uh, by these agreements, I mean, by they were changed by agreement, but they were never changed by statute and by requirement of the commission. As a matter of fact, prior to 1983, we didn't even reach the question of contracts. The protective arrangements, if you look at the protective arrangements and all the agreements, they don't provide for any compensation for loss of contract rights. They provide for compensation for loss of jobs, for being required to transfer, and so forth. And this was all done by agreement. And agreements were always made. I don't recall in 40 years of practice before the Interstate Commerce Commission and under the Railway Labor Act that there was ever not an agreement as a result of a merger. There were a number of agreements, a number of mergers that took place and are still in existence in which there are different agreements on different sections of the railroad, like the Burlington Northern, because they never got together and put all the agreements together, but they set it up as divisions. But I don't recall any time. So, so you, you think what this means is that uh, if, if there were, a, let's say, a, a station master who, who would have served in a particular location, uh, even though he could contractually have been transferred, but in fact he was serving where he lived, uh, this provision means that even though you, you, you had a contractual right to transfer him, you, you, won't, tra- you won't transfer him for four years. No, it doesn't mean that. if you have a contractual right to transfer him, you can transfer him, give him seniority anywhere, and he's got to exercise that seniority or he gets no protection. Is the, is the reading of the section that the railroad and the union can reach an agreement with respect to the effects of the merger on the employees, but that this is a minimum standard that the ICC must insist upon? Yes, is, is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. As in the original language of 5.2.F, the third sentence says, notwithstanding the foregoing, the parties may reach whatever reasonable agreement they wish. And, and that has always been the case. Now, the, the, because they have taken over an area, it's, this is a little unusual. It's not like Schwabach or it's not like any of the cases that I've read, uh, Daniel, the Daniel case, Seaboard case, or any of those, because here there is a direct invasion of another complementary regime which Congress designed to govern 
rail transportation in the United States. It's a direct invasion of that. There has never been any conflict before. The Commission declared the conflict, created the conflict, and then said, we win. We, so, Mr. Mooney, so certainly the antitrust laws are set aside. Oh, yes, Your Honor. Well, so why, done, why shouldn't all... Yeah, well, why, why shouldn't all other law after the antitrust laws include other federal laws? I think, I think all other... I, you could set aside all other law, but this, you'd have to find, first of all, it seems to me, an explicit conflict. There has to be some... If no chance at accommodation here, there well, is you, accommodation. You, do you think... Bef- do you, do you think in Schwabacher there was a conflict? Oh, not in it with any federal law, Your Honor. No, well, there was, a conflict, was, there, was there a conflict law. with state law? Preempted that, yes. Well, why shouldn't federal law be equally preempted? Because where Congress has enacted complementary regimes of law to govern the same subject matter, such as rail transportation in the United States, it seems to me that before one of those can be interpreted to supersede or preempt the other, there should, be, there should be a very clear conflict and no possible way of accommodating and allowing both of those laws to well, proceed. I, I, can, I can certainly understand the merit of that argument if neither law said anything with respect to the other. Yes. But, but here the ICA says uh, that the people part- participating in this transaction are exempt from the, I mean, it deals with conflict yes. and says that this law prevails. That's, that's true, Your Honor, but the it's only exempt insofar as necessary to carry out an order as conditioned. Yes, and the condition is 11.347, and 11.347 says preserve all collective bargaining agreements and collective bargaining rights. I, I don't see how anyone can get out of that, that, that circle. It's there. You can't ignore it if you're going to determine. But, that, but now you're not arguing the Railway Labor Act as having to be adjusted and compromised along with the IC. You're saying that this act itself... That's correct, Your Honor. Those are two different arguments. Really. Well, the, the, the railway, I'm, I'm saying that the Railway Labor Act as a separate regime is not invaded, cannot be invaded, or should not be invaded by 11341, unless there's an absolute conflict that can't be avoided. Okay. But at the same time, if you're going to say that, yes, you can read 11341 that way, then you have to go to 11347, because 11340 exempts only those carriers uh, in carrying out transactions as conditioned. They have to carry them out as condition, and one of the conditions is a minimum level of preserving all collective bargaining agreements. But 11.347 doesn't say that, does it? Or am I wrong? What is the language? You you told the Chief Justice that 11.347 says that all existing collective bargaining uh, contracts have to be preserved. I I just don't see that in the section. Section 11.347, Your Honor, says that they must imp- they, that the Commission must impose as a minimum level of protection the same protections that were imposed by the Secretary of, of uh, Labor uh, for the protection of employees in the Amtrak case, uh, when Amtrak was created. And you go to that statute and you find in that statute the precise sections two and three of the New York Dock conditions, which the Commission just adopted, not adapted, but adopted from uh, the, the secretary and put them in, and those become the requirements. Of but law. do those refer to the collective bargaining contracts? They they say section two says they must be preserve all collective bargaining and collective bargaining rights, privileges, and benefits. And section three says you must preserve no employee shall lose any protective agreement, like the Orange Book, and he has the a right to elect between his protective agreement and the conditions imposed by the commission. And if, if he picks one, when that one expires, he can then go to the other one. That's what Section 3 says. The Commission doesn't even mention that and wipes out the Orange Book. 
So it, it's a, uh, it, it does, we, we respectfully submit, Your Honor, as we pointed out, at, uh, I think you'll find that on uh, 11.347 is on 5A, and then the New York Dock Conditions Sections 2 and 3. Or in 11.347 just covers the period for four years after the date of the final action of the commission, doesn't it? No. No, Your Honor. That covers the period for six years from the date the employee is affected. The employee could be affected three, four, five, six years later. And from the date of his adverse effect, then he's protected for six years forward of that date. Well, it, it, it must say that in something that's not before me because the, the first part certainly says four years. The first part of what? The first part of 11, unless I'm simply dealing with a typographical, 11347. Uh, yeah, 11347 is, uh, we've printed it out on page 4A of our appendix. When a real carrier involved in a transaction, which is for approval, which is sought under 11344, the ICC shall require the carrier to provide a fair arrangement as least as protective of the interests of employees who are affected by the transaction as the terms imposed under this section before February 5, 1976. That was the old New Orleans conditions, which was the Washington Agreement upon which was superimposed for the first four years Oklahoma conditions, and that was because the Oklahoma yes, conditions... Yes, but then, then, then go on to, to the last sentence of, 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 of 11.347 at the top of page 5A of your appendix. There it does say, uh, will not be in a worse position related to their employment as a result of the transaction during the four years following the effective date of the following action of the Commission. That's correct, Your Honor. But... Yeah, how, how long ago did the Commission Act in this case? The problem, the, the Commission Act in this case in 1980. But here it says you not only have to impose uh, the conditions that were imposed before February 5, but the terms established under 405 of the Rail Passenger Service Act. And that's what we were talking about a moment ago. The terms established under 405 of the Rail Passenger Service Act are as set forth in sections 2 and 3. Of, of the New York Dock conditions. And that's what this entire case is about, that one of the conditions is preserve collective bargaining rights and collective bargaining agreement rights, and that's what they didn't do here. That's what they, that's what they, simply, they simply wiped out. The employees, for example, the ATDA, the, just the, uh, the employees represented by the ATDA, the American Train Dispatchers Association, on the Norfolk and Western Railroad, they were required to go to another railroad controlled by Norfolk Southern, which was the Southern Railroad. And when they went to the Southern Railroad, when they got there, they no longer had representation under the, under the law and under the statute, and they no longer had a contract, no contract protection. Now, they may think, someone may say, well, they were much better off. Well, maybe they were, maybe they weren't. That isn't the point. The point is that they didn't have any contract protection anymore, and they didn't have any representation anymore. And the fellows at Waycross, they were sent from the old SCL Railroad in Waycross, Georgia, up to Raceland, a, a commonly controlled CSX-controlled railroad, another railroad. Not, these aren't the same railroads. These were separate railroads then, under common control. CSX controlled both railroads that you go there. When they got there, they were under a different contract with different rules and different working conditions. And half of them had, had this contract right, which the arbitrator found required them to stay in on SCL property for life, lifetime employment or lifetime full compensation in lieu of employment. And not required them to stay, but required the railroad to keep them if they'd wanted. Or prohibit them from moving. I'm yeah. sorry, I misspoke myself. 
prohibit them from moving. They could stay there with lifetime employment or lifetime protection, compensation, full compensation, in lieu of employment. And the commission now says to them, not anymore. If you stay there, you're going to get nothing. If you want that lifetime protection, move to Raceland. You've got to get off the SCL property. That's the contract violation, and for which they would get nothing. And the commission has said... Which uh, <laughs> didn't, didn't the commission say that the... Uh that uh, the promise of lifetime employment was also abrogated or not? Well, only if, no, if they moved. They, the, the commission said that if they, if they moved, uh, and the carriers said that they would give them a lifetime protection if they moved. But, of course, they could say next week, let's move again. And it became sort of worthless. But nevertheless, if they stayed, which they had the right to do, according to the arbitrator who interpreted the agreement, if they stayed there, then they got no protection at all of any kind. Mr. Gallagher, why isn't that why isn't that a separate section? I thought this case just involved 11341, and I thought the, uh, the court below held that there simply is no power under that to alter the contractual arrangements. Uh, right. You're making the argument that under 11347, uh, uh, there is a specific preservation of those contractual arrangements. That may be, but that wasn't what the court below... That's correct. Had before it. He never reached. But all my point is here that if if you say that 11341 or lean to the the proposition that 11341 supersedes contracts or overrides contracts, then you have to look at 11347 because 11341 only extends protection or exemptions to those carriers. So we we could tell the Court of Appeals below, you're wrong about 11341, uh, remand and tell them to consider 11347 if we think that that 11341 says nothing about not impairing. That's correct, Your Honor. You could do that, Your Honor. And unfortunately, um, that, that we think, would be a, a terribly unjust thing to do in these cases, simply because these people have been deprived of these rights for, for five years, eight years, ten years. The commission is, constant, commission is now interpreting contracts, interpreting collective bargaining agreements. I cited a couple in a, in a couple of footnotes. Where they're now interpreting agreements to see if they violate the commission orders or whether the orders violate the, the uh, contracts. That's unheard of. They're now doing what the National Railroad Adjustment Board has exclusive authority to do. They've never done that before. It's never, no contract has ever been held or eliminated or modified by any order, including the the only three cases they ever cite, which is the 63 Eighth Circuit case, which upheld a contract, Uh, a Burlington Northern case in 75 with their supervisors, which also upheld a contract, and the statement that the ICC made in 1974 when when the uh, trustee of the area Lackawanna wanted to get out from under a contract, when he wanted to get out from under the contract, he went back to the, the commission and said, we want out from under this uh, attrition agreement. And we came in and opposed it on two grounds. And fortunately, I raised the question. One was that you don't have authority to do that, ICC. And the other was you shouldn't do it anyway because they haven't proved their case. And the ICC said, well, yeah, we got the authority because that 63 Court of Appeals uh, said we did. But uh, we're not going to exercise that authority because they didn't make their case. So there's never been a contract upset. Until now, until the Commission has found this conflict and started upsetting contract. And, and Your Honor, uh, we, we, we don't want to go back and start all over again on this or another four years. There might not be enough of the employees left to bother with. And besides that, the Commission has recognized, in this remand decision, they recognize that since their decision, this has caused a enormous deterioration in the labor management relations in this industry, and it has. And that is one of the things 
that they're supposed to avoid. And this court said in Loudoun that you should avoid, if possible. And it's, they have created this terrible upset among these employees and management. Because management likes it. There's no bargaining anymore. Why should they bargain with us anymore? All they have to do is say, the commission says this consolidation 10 years down the road has been authorized. And we got to, if you have a consolidation, you've got to move from A to B, naturally. That's by definition. So it's necessary. It's an authorized, necessary consolidation. The contracts go out the window and everything is moved. There's no way to prove that isn't necessary. It is by definition necessary to go from A to B if you're going to consolidate A with B. And that's the great problem that, that we face. And we think that what they have done is they've taken 11347, which is clearly, no question, it was designed as a shield to protect employee rights against ICC orders, converted it into a sword, and cut out their contract rights. No other questions, Your Honors. I conclude my argument. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Mahoney. Mr. Muneer, I believe you reserved two minutes for rebuttal. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. I think it's important to emphasize that the issue in this case is the construction of 11341A, and in particular, the meaning of the phrase, the antitrust laws and any other law. Uh, the unions have raised at great length the question of the meaning of Section 11347. That is an issue that is presently before the Commission on remand in this case. Uh, it is an issue that will be addressed after this Court uh, addresses this issue of 11341. We do not think it's necessary for the Court to interpret 11347 in this proceeding. In fact, it would be quite improvident to do so. Uh, beyond that, the unions have not raised any issue beyond the, uh, that reaches the plain language of the statute here. We think that the plain language controls 11341A covers all law including laws related to enforcement of contract. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Muneer. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until Monday next at 10 o'clock. <laughs>